I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles once again to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 14 and 15 specifically this morning, but I want to read beginning in verse 9. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We're in a section that began in verse 1 of chapter 6 in which Jesus is teaching us, telling us how it is that we are to practice righteousness. So you recall through chapter 5, he explains what true righteousness is. And now in chapter 6, he's teaching us how it is that we as his people are to practice it. And Jesus has brought up the matter of prayer to us. An obvious act of righteousness, praying to God, and he has given us instruction about it, and he has given us what is known as the Lord's Prayer in instructing us how it is that we are to pray, the types of things we are to pray for. So Jesus has given us this Lord's Prayer, instructing us how to pray, and in verse 12, he tells us we are to pray for forgiveness as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And after the Lord's Prayer ends, there are these two verses which pick up on this, these verses 14 and 15, they pick up on this prayer for forgiveness and this reference to forgiving others, our debtors, and it explains this a little more in verses 14 and 15. Now, in those words that we find in verses 14 and 15, in one sense, they're really quite straightforward. There's nothing terribly difficult Uh, That is, there's no complex Greek grammar that we have to try and figure out or work out or anything like that. We just have two if-then statements that are contrasted with one another. So he says, for if you forgive, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. But alternatively, if you do not forgive, then neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. So these two statements contrasted with one another. So They're relatively straightforward grammatically, but in another sense, there is some obvious difficulty with these verses. I suspect that most of us, when we read this and think about these just straightforwardly as they seem to be written, we would think that they seem to be saying that God's forgiveness of me God's forgiveness of you is somehow, at least in part, caused by or brought about by me forgiving other people. That's what it seems to suggest. I think a lot of us might just read it that way. And of course, if we read it that way, and if that's what this is saying, then that causes all kinds of trouble with the gospel. That causes all kinds of trouble with the solas. You know, that we're justified sola 
gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, that we are justified and forgiveness is part of being justified, is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Well, if, if my forgiving others contributes in part to my forgiveness, well, then it's no longer sola anything, is it? It's not sola gratia, because I've contributed now. I've done a work to contribute. It's not just through Christ, because I am now bringing my share, my part to this. It is not just by faith, it is by forgiving others, the act and work of forgiving. And it's certainly not to the glory of God alone, because I've done something that I could get credit for here. And so I want to address that difficulty But before we do, and and this, Harley did uh, mention this and talk about this last time as well, so we're just kind of expanding on this. But before we get into that difficulty a little further and try and figure out how does this work, what is being said here, before we jump into that, I don't want us to miss the reality of what Jesus is saying here. Because there is a, a, a statement here that is pretty straightforward that we need to hear and take and, and sit under the weight of and make sure it lands. So I've, I've said this a couple times as we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. There are some statements throughout this sermon that at first glance are very difficult. They raise questions. Maybe it's a theological question. We're not really sure how this statement fits with the rest of the scripture, etc. And we instantly then just want to jump to trying to answer that objection, answer that question. How does this fit? And we start trying to figure this out, and we kind of satisfy ourselves intellectually somewhat, and then we think, okay, good. And then, and then we just move on without really having sat under and felt the weight of what it is Jesus is saying. So, for example, earlier in chapter 5, we read, of course, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. We think, well, that can't really be literal, can it? Is it? Surely not. And so we, well, how does that fit? What does this mean? Is this, and we try to answer that and we find an answer and we say, okay, good. That's not really literal. And then we move on to the next thing. We figured it out and we move on without having really taken the intention of that passage seriously, that Jesus is informing us of how serious we ought to take our sin, how much we ought to deal with that with great weightiness. And we can just kind of answer that objection intellectually and move on. And we don't want to simply do that. Now, obviously, it is a good and important thing to understand how the Sermon on the Mount and its various parts fit in with the Scriptures as a whole. How does this fit in with the clear teaching in Scripture of God's grace alone that saves? That's important. This is an important part of hermeneutics, of reading the Bible and understanding it. We want to know how it fits with the other parts of the Scriptures. But again, we don't want to miss sitting under the clear and simple teaching that Jesus is giving us here in this somewhat difficult phrase. So in this text, what is clear is that forgiving others is a necessary mark of a true Christian. Forgiving others is a necessary mark of a true Christian. You read this text, verses 14 and 15, and you clearly see forgiving others is not some optional thing that we have, is it? That, that much is very clear. And while we have questions to answer, we need to figure out in what way is this a necessary mark? What does that mean? We don't want to skip over this. 
We need to consider and think about and hear again this reality that forgiving other people is not something Jesus says is optional at all in any way. And we need to be reminded of it because we have all kinds of opportunities in which we need to forgive other people. And the reality of the matter is that it's not often very easy to do. So in this succinct and yet challenging way, Jesus tells us that forgiving others is a necessary mark of a Christian. Of course, again, we want to get to in what way is it necessary? What does that mean? We'll come to that. But our outline for today, there's just two points to our outline. First, we're going to look at the definition of forgiveness. And then secondly, the necessity of forgiveness. So you have the definition and the necessity of forgiveness. So first, the definition of forgiveness. This is, of course, one of those words that we are all aware of, we all use, we all know, but that we may or may not really understand what it is we're talking about. What does it mean to forgive another person? And so before we get into talking about how it's necessary to forgive, we should first understand what what is forgiveness. So Jesus says here in verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. The word forgive here means to release from legal or moral obligation or consequence, to cancel, to remit, or to pardon. It is to release from legal or moral obligation or consequence. So so the idea that's given to us in Scripture is that if someone sins against you, they've accrued a debt of sorts to you. They've wronged you, and this ought to be made right. And to forgive someone is to release them from that debt. It is to pardon them. It is to say, there is no longer anything you owe me. You owe me nothing. The debt is gone. I forgive you. There's another word, there's a few words that are used in the New Testament for this word forgive that are translated as forgive. Another one of the common words is built on the root of the word that is grace, which reminds us, acknowledges that the person being forgiven doesn't really deserve to be forgiven. There's an actual real debt they've actually done wrong, but they are graciously being let off the hook, so to speak. They're being pardoned for it. Forgiving another person involves not holding that sin against them any longer. It involves a commitment by the one forgiving to no longer dwell upon it and meditate upon that wrong, to no longer talk about it with them or with other people, certainly, and to not bring it up with that individual and throw it back in their face. Yeah, well, remember you did this. If you forgive them for that, then this is a commitment to not do those things. It is putting away that sin. It's covering over it. It is no more. And we see that this is the kind of thing God does to his people when he forgives our sin. Isaiah 43, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. They're done. They're gone. So forgiving somebody is clearly more than simply uttering the words, I forgive you. 
right? This should not be surprising to us. We've seen that righteousness is a matter of the heart throughout this Sermon on the Mount. And so it is not simply enough to say the words, I forgive you, right? The words that we hear often, the words that our children say, it's not simply saying the words, I forgive you. But it is also not saying that, well, it's really just no big deal at all. Of course, there are times people might sin against you, and, and really in the grand scheme of things, there's a certain sense in which, yes, it's really not a big deal. Uh, it, it's, you, know, you, you can easily forgive them, no problem. But really, if, if one has sinned against another, We're not quite permitted to say it's really not a big deal. Well, all sin is a big deal in one sense before God. And so when you forgive somebody, you're acknowledging this was actually a wrong done, but I'm forgiving you of it. I'm releasing you of this debt. We, We no longer need to discuss this. It's over with. It's in the past. It's gone. Obviously, forgiveness is not always an easy thing to do. It's not something we always feel like doing, but we're called to do it. We're not given a choice. Forgiveness, properly speaking, is to be granted to those who acknowledge their wrongdoing, who repent. I think this is one of the very, a very common misunderstanding of forgiving people, forgiving other people. That it should, it's contingent upon a recognition of wrongdoing. If you simply forgive everyone, everything, no matter what they say, whether they think it's wrong or not, you just are constantly forgiving and therefore committing yourself not to bring it up or talk about it or think about it, there's never going to be a time to bring it up with that person, to confront them, to address wrongs. So listen to what Jesus teaches in Luke 17, 3 and 4. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Bring it up to him. Rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Notice very clearly that forgiving that person is contingent upon Repentance. Forgiveness is for those who ask for it. We read earlier from Matthew chapter 18, we read the parable of the unmerciful servant. And in there, we find this servant who had been forgiven much turn around and refused to forgive another person. And that other servant was asking for mercy, right? That's representing the repentant person. They know they have a debt. They want out from under it, and they're asking for mercy. Earlier in chapter 18, which we also read in verse 15, we have this classic passage on church discipline. There again, believers are told to go to the brother who sins against you and show him his fault. And it says that if he listens to you, you have won him over. That implies that he agrees. There is agreement. Yes, this was sin. This person then repents of that sin and you've won him over. It's over. Case closed. You forgive him and you carry on. Again, that restoration, that winning him over is dependent upon repentance and acknowledgement of that wrong, of that sin. 
And when they do repent, you're to forgive them. But notice also in Matthew 18, if there is no acknowledgement of sin, and the process continues, and there's no repentance, at the end of it all, if that procedure plays out, they remain unrepentant, then they are to be removed from the church. In other words, that sin is not forgiven. If it was forgiven, then why are you removing them from the church? Why are you bringing it up at all? Repentance is to be granted to those who are, sorry, forgiveness is to be granted to the repentant. And if we think about society, so outside the church and society at large, if we're just to forgive every evil thing regardless of one's contrition, then what opportunity is there going to be to speak out against evil? After all, you're not supposed to bring it up. To simply forgive in this way is to really perpetuate the problem. You're really saying when you forgive, there is no debt here, it's gone. When really there is, things haven't been right, there's been no acknowledgement of, of wrongdoing. A person needs to know their error, needs to know that they've done wrong. And then forgiveness can be granted when they acknowledge that. If we don't have some understanding of that, even outside of society, then we'll never bring things up. Well, we're Christians, we're just supposed to just forgive, and so I can't bring that up because I just got to let it go. Again, part of our duty as Christians is to proclaim God's law, which does reveal sin to people, that there has been wrongdoing. This whole matter of uh, forgiving those who are repentant, I think strikes us maybe, it might strike some of you as a bit odd, sounds maybe off, because we're, we've been told that our forgiveness of people is supposed to be just blanket and, and uh, unconditional. But I don't think that's really what the scriptures teach. It might be partly a poor view of forgiveness as being partly why so many Christians are afraid to speak out. Well, aren't you supposed to be forgiving? How could you say that, you know, this group of people are living in sin? They're going to experience God's judgment. Oh, you're not a gracious person at all. We go, oh, man, I, I guess I'm just supposed to forgive them and let it go. And so I'm not really supposed to bring it up. It might be why we're hesitant to talk to one another, brothers and sisters, about sin, even though we're told over and over to rebuke a brother or sister. Obviously, this will come up more in in chapter 7. There's a way in which we're supposed to do that. There's bad ways to do that, obviously. But, gee, if I just am supposed to forgive them, then I I don't know if I can bring this up. And, of course, you know, you, you might go to somebody, and they have that view as well. What? You're supposed to forgive me. Why are you bringing this up to me? That feels judgmental. Because we have a misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. Now, none of this means that we can be bitter and angry and resentful toward those who unrepentantly wrong us. So we don't need to adopt a false dichotomy here where either we forgive them Or the only other option is to be angry and bitter about what people have done to us. Those are not our only two options. We remember, of course, the Christian virtues of patience, 
long-suffering, bearing with one another, praying for those who persecute us, correcting others in gentleness, humility. We're told to not avenge ourselves, but to leave it to the wrath of God when others have wronged us. Presumably unrepentantly. So in no way does reserving forgiveness for the repentant mean that that's somehow licensed to be bitter and resentful and angry. Right? We're warned about bitterness. Hebrews 12:15. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. So I would suggest when it comes to the unrepentant, those who wrong us and they're, they're not repentant about it, obviously if that's within the church, Matthew 18 gives us guidelines of how to handle that and deal with that. But if somebody remains unrepentant, I think what all of this implies is that we are to be those who stand ready, eager, and desiring to grant forgiveness to people when they recognize they've wronged us. And before we move on, I just want to acknowledge that sin is a very broad category. We are called to forgive, but this doesn't mean that there won't sometimes be consequences for the forgiven party because of their sin. So, for example, you might forgive somebody who asks you for forgiveness, but they might still have to endure legal consequences if that was an illegal act, for example. Think of abuse cases and and other types of crimes that could be committed. We think of children. We can forgive a child when they know they've done wrong, but still give a consequence for that action. God, we are told, disciplines those that he loves. Does he forgive those? Of course he does. There's still a consequence for it. So we're not going to tease all of that out, but I just want to acknowledge that this matter of forgiveness can be complicated, that sin is wide-ranging, and there are some awful things that humans do to other humans. And we are called to forgive when people confess that sin, but there are some complicated situations. But Jesus here is just stating things succinctly and rather straightforwardly and simply. That Christians are not those who operate in bitterness, who hold every wrong over the heads of those who commit them, refusing to let it go when confessed. So this is forgiveness. Secondly, the necessity of forgiveness. Again, Jesus is teaching us here that forgiving others is a necessary mark of a true Christian. So verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, in both of these verses, the Father's forgiveness is in the future tense. He will or he will not forgive at a future time. It's looking ahead. I would suggest that this is looking ahead to the final judgment, the time when we will stand before God for judgment. Will that verdict at that time be justified, forgiven, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master? Or will it be damned, unforgiven, away from me, I never knew you? And the forgiveness of the Father 
is dependent in some way, in some way, upon whether the individual has forgiven others, thereby making forgiveness necessary. So again, in what way is forgiveness necessary? Well, I would suggest to you that this is really no different than what we have seen a number of times and pointed out a number of times already over the years, but even just within the Sermon on the Mount. Again, we tend to think, we read verses 14 and 15 and think Jesus is, maybe this is saying that the cause of our forgiveness is because we forgave other people. That's the reason we will be forgiven. But here's what one commentator says. Although the grammar presents forgiving others as a necessary necessary condition for receiving forgiveness from God, a condition should not be confused with a cause. A condition should not be confused with a cause. So let me give you something to illustrate this and hopefully bring clarity. If you were going to come to my house for a visit, a necessary condition of that, something that would have to happen, is you would have to come to 7th Street because that's where my house is. So if you were to come to a visit, it's a necessary condition that you would come to 7th Street. But being on 7th Street is not the cause of your visit. You're coming because you were invited or you had something to drop off or whatever. Right? Lots of people go up and down 7th Street, but they don't necessarily come to my house. Right? So you, 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 you have to come to 7th Street to come to my house, but that's not the cause of your coming. This is the difference between a cause and a condition, a necessary condition. So the, when we think of forgiveness, a sinner's forgiveness of sins before God, the cause of a sinner's forgiveness, the grounds of your justification is found in Christ Jesus alone. In his righteousness imputed, credited to your account, and in his paying of your debt, your penalty on the cross. Your sole hope of the forgiveness of sins is that Christ Jesus has fully satisfied the wrath of God for your sins, paying the penalty in full. Your hope is that his righteousness is now credited to your account. And so you stand justified before God. This is something that is graciously given to God by God to sinners upon faith in Christ. And your good deeds, your works, including forgiving other people that sin against you, they do not add to this at all. They do not contribute to the cause of your forgiveness. They do not contribute to the grounds of your justification. Well, you've got Jesus in your corner, but also you need just a little more. You need to forgive others. Now that you've done that, you can be forgiven. That's not what this is saying. That is not what the scriptures teach. We do not beef up anything that Christ Jesus has done with our good works, providing the grounds now of our salvation, the cause of our forgiveness of sins. This is why you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He is your sole hope of standing clean before God. This is the reason you must forsake your own self and your own good deeds and your own efforts at righteousness 
as providing any merit before God. It is found in Christ Jesus alone. You cannot contribute anything to that, and you will not ever. We've sang about it in almost every song this morning. All we have is Christ. This is true. We cling to him. But as we have discussed many times and in this Sermon on the Mount, Christ's mission is not only to forgive you and credit you with his righteousness, but also for those whom he has done that for, he is also making you righteous. Which is to say he is sanctifying you. He is making you more into his image, the image of God. And so we know a life spent pursuing the righteousness that Christ has been outlining to us in the Sermon on the Mount is only possible if one has been graciously redeemed by God and born again, given the Spirit of God, made new. A person that is made new. Christ, through his Spirit and by his word, is making his people, all those he saves and redeems, more holy. And so Jesus can say, we talked about this back in chapter 5, verse 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Your sanctification is not the grounds upon which you enter the kingdom of heaven, but your sanctification is still necessary. Faith that does not result in good deeds is a dead faith, right? This is what James teaches us. Faith apart from deeds is not a saving faith. True saving faith will issue forth in good deeds. And so forgiving others is another aspect of this sanctification. It is another of these good deeds that issue forth from saving faith, from one who is born again. It is a mark of a true believer. If a person has indeed been born again, has indeed entered the kingdom of God, is indeed a true disciple of Jesus Christ, then he will be one who forgives. That's what Jesus is saying. It can't be otherwise. We should read this similar to how we read the other Beatitudes. So you remember earlier in chapter 5, it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Well, being a merciful person is not the ultimate cause. It's not the reason why the Lord will be merciful to them at the final judgment. It is a mark, being merciful is a mark, it is a characteristic of Christ's people who will be shown mercy on the last day. Likewise, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It is not the cause of our future satisfaction. Well, this guy hungered and thirsted enough, and so he will find satisfaction for his soul. Rather, it is a marker of those who are going to later receive eternal satisfaction from God. 
confession that we've been studying on Wednesdays helpfully defines good works, which would include forgiving other people, as the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. How do we know what a believer is? By their fruit. And this includes their willingness to forgive other people. Core to the very message of the Christian gospel, of the good news, of the Bible itself, is that there is forgiveness of sins available to the very worst of sinners. There is forgiveness of sins available in Jesus' name. The good news is that Christ has died and risen from the dead, that men, upon faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, may be forgiven, freed from sin, freed from its punishment under the wrath of God, the just wrath of God. There is forgiveness of sins. Yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who is righteous and does good, but there is forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And the saving response to this is to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Place your hope and faith in him alone. So at the core, then, think about this, at the core of who we are as Christians is this whole idea of forgiveness. And so there is a horrific irony, a terrible irony, when a professing Christian will not forgive another person. That parable we read in Matthew 18 highlights this and makes this very clear to us. The Christian is one who recognizes their sinfulness before God, holy, almighty, eternal God, and that this sin deserves, makes me worthy of an eternity in hell, and that even after millions of years in hell, we still have not paid off the debt to God for our sin. That is how vile and wretched my sin is. And the Christian is one who says, praise God for his mercy because he has pardoned me of this sin. So to turn around to another and say, this debt you have to me, this sin against you, it's just too much. It's just too much. You're going to live under my heavy hand. It does not make any sense. Do you see the cognitive dissonance here that goes on? It doesn't fit. Your massive Debt wiped clean as an act of God's mercy because of nothing you've done. And here somebody desires you to show pity and mercy to them. And you say, no, I won't do it. Has such a person properly understood the very gospel they claim to believe in? What God has done for them? I don't think they have. And I think that is precisely what Jesus is getting at here in verses 14 and 15 and Matthew 18 in that parable. Again, the the emphasis here is on the one forgiving, whose responsibility is to forgive. I read from Luke 17 where they're asking, Peter asks, if if they sin seven times in a day, am I, this is in Matthew 18 as well, am I really to forgive them this? And the answer is yes. We might wonder, is that a real repentance? What kind of repentance is that if they're going to just go on and continue to do this? 
Well, the Bible speaks of what true repentance is. But in these texts, the emphasis of the teaching is on the one who has been wronged. And even if their repentance seems maybe a bit questionable, we're not entirely sure, we're to, we're to grant them pardon. Seven times in a day. Well, how many times do you sin against God in a day? Yes, we, we forgive. What others do to us, this pales in comparison to our debt before God. And yet God has wiped that clean. And as we have been forgiven in Christ Jesus, so also we are to forgive others. Christians are marked by forgiving others. If you have someone that you need to forgive, maybe that comes to mind as you hear these things, as you think about Jesus' words, I would implore you to do so, to forgive them. Where appropriate, make it known to them. Repent of your lack of forgiveness before God when he has forgiven you so much. And if you need to grow in this area of forgiving other people, and I, I mean, let's be honest, I think we all need to grow in this area. I just want to give a few further considerations to maybe help us cultivate a forgiving heart. That we might be ready and desiring to forgive and quick to forgive. The first is just what we've just been saying. To meditate on the extent of your own sinfulness and the great debt of yours that God has canceled at the cross. Meditate on the mercy you've been shown by God. If Christ is indeed your hope. Again, Matthew 18 is a parable that helps us with that. Secondly, I would encourage us to seek humility in life. Just in general, humility. Not forgiving others is so often tied to me. What I have been robbed of. What you have done to me. The inconvenience to me. The way I have been hurt. Do you understand what this has done to me? And we want to hold this over people. Let us be willing to let things go. To to grant forgiveness. This is not ultimately about me. You're going to be wronged in this life. People will sin against you in this life. And you need to come to terms with that. And it might even be grievous at times. And it doesn't make it right, but it's going to happen. You now serve at the leisure of your Lord Jesus. Christ suffered. His people will suffer great injustice and wrong. Even people that you love, people within the church will still harm you and sin against you. If we can grow in humility, it will be a tremendous aid in forgiving other people. Thirdly, go to your brother or sister who sins against you. Rather than just sit on it and fume on it, go to them. Talk to them about it. With the desire of just having it be past us, of the, with the desire of forgiving them. 
Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It is his glory to overlook an offense. There are times when it is good and noble to overlook a matter. So when we think about this, there are times when it's right to just overlook it. Somebody says something and you take it maybe as hurtful. You think, you know what? Maybe they just were having not a great day. This isn't much. I'll just, it's not right, but I'm going to just put it behind me, not dwell upon it. I don't have to bring this up. No problem. That's a good thing to be able to do. We assume the best of somebody. Maybe they're just having an off day. They probably have no idea that might have hurt. I can just let this go. That's a good quality. But if that becomes from that person, maybe a pattern over and over again, or maybe you try to just overlook it, but you can't, you're just having trouble that really stung. This needs to be dealt with. I'm I'm having trouble just moving on. Or perhaps it's a bigger issue, a bigger deal. Go to them. Go to your brother. Go to your sister. Go assuming the best. Go with the hope of working it out, with the desire to forgive. Go with his or her good in mind. This is not just about me having my, you know, dignity restored by them getting on their knees and asking my forgiveness. This is about their own good. If this is a pattern, this is sin in them, it's for their own good that they would be aware of it and repent of it and work on this, that they might be sanctified. Again, don't let things fester, but go to brothers and sisters. This is a way to to practice forgiving. And as we think about wrongs, as we move maybe outside of the church to society, those who might wrong you outside of society, one thing you can ask yourself, if you think about maybe someone who has wronged you and they're unrepentant about it, you know, if you could find such a, a scenario. Ask yourself, what would I do if they did repent of this? If they acknowledged that this was wrong? Would that bring you joy? Would you love to forgive them and then move on? So that's evidence of God's grace. So forgiving others is not presented to us here as something that is an optional matter. It is a necessary mark of a Christian. It is a fruit that is evidence of the new birth and of true saving faith. It is evidence that you understand the gospel even and how much you have been forgiven. If you find yourself in a place where you refuse to forgive a person, though they seek it and desire it, or you're so bitter toward another that even if they sought your pity, you would deny it to them. If you're honest with yourself and that's what you realize, then this is a cause for soul searching. You have need of repentance before God. Those whose boast is in Christ Jesus that he has died to put away your many sins 
forever. Those who have such a hope realize that other sins against them pale in comparison to this great debt that has been wiped out. And so Christ's people are indeed marked by a willingness to forgive others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we catch only a glimpse of your holiness and greatness. Your greatness and your being is beyond the grasp of us finite creatures. Yet we know enough you have revealed true knowledge of yourself to us in your word. We know enough to know what our sins deserve before you is judgment, is your righteous and just wrath. We praise you for your mercy, for sending your son to die for us, to rise again from the dead, to intercede for us. We thank you that your mercy and this salvation, that the forgiveness of our sins is a gift of your grace to us. Yet, Father, we know that those who truly believe this, who have been born again and made new, are also those who have your fruit produced in us. And we thank you for this reminder that forgiving others is one of those fruits. Make us willing. Forgive us where we are dwelling upon the sins of others against us. Perhaps where we have said we forgive, but have not really in our hearts, grant us to truly forgive. Father, make us desirous of forgiving others around us who have wronged us, who continue to wrong us, but from whom there's no recognition of wrongdoing. Father, even as we try to point those things out and reason with people that they might see their wrongdoing, make us desiring of, desirous of granting pardon. That we would not simply desire to see people burn up under judgment and get what's coming, but that we would desire to see them first and foremost have their sins washed clean in the blood of Christ, that they would be made right with you, that we would also then be willing and desiring to forgive them of their wrongs against us. Father, give us fresh amazement at the extent of the forgiveness you have granted to us. Father, we acknowledge we need your help. As with all areas of righteousness, we need your help in this area. So we pray that you would indeed help us, that you would sanctify us in this matter, make us those who are quick to forgive. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.